Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. On the agenda this week, going to be having a chat about the defenestrations of Prague. Now, uh, you might even, maybe not even on the right foot here, you don't even know what a defenestration is, and I'm here to remedy that ailment uh, in no uncertain terms because it's, it's not an often used word. It's, it's generally used by the sort of people who like to use words to make themselves sound very smart, sort of, you know, the sort of bloke who'll say masticate instead of chew or egregious in, instead of whatever it actually means. And um, defenestration essentially just means to chuck something out of a window. That that's It's a fancy way of saying that. And, you know, I guess the sort of people who generally routinely throw things out of windows also need a fancy way to describe what they're doing. Anyway, as I say, often used by blokes who want to appear much smarter than they are. And, of course, that is the name of the game uh, with uh, half past history. So let's uh, rev, rev, rev up the old engines and, uh, and burn some rubber here, mate. Anyway. Funny old couple of stories uh, from you know what happened here with the, in Prague uh, over over the centuries with the defenestrations of Prague. Um, two times, twice, some angry Protestants in Prague have chucked some Catholics out of various windows, and in doing so, helped kick off enormous religious wars. So this happened twice, twice in completely you know completely different periods in history. Protestants have chucked Catholics out of windows in Prague. To start religious wars. So let's get to it and have a chat about exactly, you know, what went on uh, with, with these two events in history. So starting things off here, we go back to the 15th century, specifically 1419. Now, this is uh, sort of, uh, this is obviously before the Reformation, but at this stage, there is still a pre-Reformation Christian movement that is getting stuck into the overwhelmingly dominant Catholic Church. So, you know, the sort of laying the groundwork for what will later go on to become the Reformation. It's known as the Hussite movement, named after a bloke named Jan Hus. Now, the Hussites are actually critically important forerunners to um, to Lutheran Protestantism, uh, which, of course, you know, kicked off good and proper in 1517 with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of uh, All Saints Church in, in Wittenberg, and which annoys me a little bit because why didn't you just use a pushpin? Like, why did he have to use a hammer and a nail when he could have just used a pushpin like everyone else, or just put it, pop it on, you know, on a cork, on a corkboard or something instead of going to all the trouble of using actual tools from bloody Mitre Ten? Anyway, good on you, Marty. What have you got it done? Anyway, hundred years before this bloke is, you know, hammering his paperwork into church doors, the Hussites they're pretty pissed off with what's going on in the Kingdom of Bohemia, which is a precursor to the modern Czech Republic. Now, the Catholic Church, up to the usual tricks, have been, you know, generally pretty rubbish blokes. And, and the Hussites, they're not impressed with this. And, and Jan Hus, he has a fair bloody go at these Catholics for what he thinks they're doing wrong. And uh, and he got into some deep pop as a result of it. Long story short, after being very mouthy about the church for a number of years, he's finally arrested. And even old mate King Wenceslaus got, gets involved here, coming in and saying, geez, you both calm down, bloody, come on, sit down, have a piece of chewy, just, you know, let's let's sort this stuff out, use your words and, and have a chat about it. By the way, this isn't good King Wenceslas from, from the Christmas Carol, by the way, this is Wenceslas IV. Uh, good King Wenceslas lived, lived hundreds of years ago in the early 10th century, but, you know, 500 years before uh, before this one. And, and good King Wenceslas, by the way, he wasn't even a king when he did the stuff in the carol. He was actually just a duke, but because he was such a top bloke, uh, after he died, he was declared a king anyway, even though he actually you know, wasn't a king when he was alive. Um, and the way that he died is actually very interesting as well, poor bloke. He was assassinated um, by some knobs who were, for, who were working for his younger brother, Boleslav. 
and they attacked him while he was having his dinner at a feast, big bloody feast, and all his mates around having a great time. Um, and three of these uh, these blokes, they stabbed him with knives, and uh, then just for good measure, he's, he, you know, his bastard of a brother, Boleslav, skewed him with a lance. So, you know, it was sort of, it was cutlery-themed murder until the lance got involved. Boleslav is actually take, uh, absolutely taking the piss there because while this is happening during this feast, his wife is giving birth and he ends up calling this kid Strachkvas, which means dreadful feast. Anyway, it doesn't, I mean, you know, all of that doesn't matter. In, it, you know, in the, the long arm of history has ended up writing the course of this particular ship and Wenceslas ended up definitely getting the better end of the deal, for, you know, from a historical perspective. He's done very well for himself. Big statue of him in Prague, you know, Christmas Carol, his skull gets brought out for big processions. No, no worries, he's, he, yeah, he's, done, he's actually done pretty well rather than Boleslav, you know relegated to a footnote in a Tin Pot History podcast. Anyway, we've got a long way off topic here, so let's get back to it, back to Wenceslas IV, who is the king of Bohemia at the time, and he's doing his best. He's doing his best to mend the rift between the Catholic Church and, uh, you know, Jan Hus and all of his mates, getting around for beers, you know, popping the footy on the telly, you know, all that sort of stuff, trying to get them to, you know, be matey-matey with each other, but nothing's working. To be honest, though, Wenceslas IV is a bit of a deal. He wasn't particularly, he wasn't a particularly good king from in the first, and uh, you know, it wasn't really taken all that seriously as a leader. And as a result, despite you know his major's best efforts, uh, Hus is still given the big middle finger to the uh, you know to the Catholic Church. And in a result, as a result, in fourteen fourteen, he's imprisoned. Uh, and he's tried the next year and convicted of heresy. And you know, as usual with these bleeding heart martyr types he's given a chance for you know the old takes his backsies but he says no mate stick it up your bum i'm a dead set hero with my heretical beliefs you can get stuffed and he does indeed get stuffed uh later on that year when he is cooked like a roast chicken from the woolies deli burnt alive on a pyre now the kingdom of bohemia by this stage is just full of blokes who got around old young horse and they are they are spewing they are spewing when they find out that he's been executed um, as a result, they organise themselves much more strictly after this, and to begin to resist the uh, they begin to resist the Catholic Church very, very strongly indeed. Now that their leader is, you know, a, a smoking pile of ash, their main grievances are laid out in what they call the Four Articles of Prague, and these uh, arguments, I guess, these, these, these political positions, religious positions they're taking, will be very familiar to anyone who has, uh, you know, even done the least amount of reading or, or research about the the actual Reformation itself, which, again, hasn't technically or officially started yet. Anyway, the four articles of Prague, they go a little bit like this. Just, you know, they were first written by a folk singer, and they went a little something like this. First one, they wanted freedom to preach however they wanted. They wanted the, uh, you know, they wanted to be able to do their own communion. They were sick and tired of priests being poor and having all their stuff nicked by the higher ups in the clergy, and they wanted everyone to be punished equally uh, for what they've done, like crimes and stuff, regardless of the depth of their hip pockets. Because you know, of course, rich blokes could buy their way back into God's graces back then, just like you know these dickhead televangelists, televangelists these days with their private jets and whatnot. Anyway, those were the four articles of Prague, and this is what the Hussites were sort of campaigning for here. And in the years after Huss's death, the tensions only get stronger and stronger between this huge Hussite population in Bohemia and the papacy in Rome. Now, one of these Hussites is a preacher named Jan Zhlevsky. Did my best. And I tell you what, this bloke had some fire in his belly. He had some fire in his belly he was very, very ready to get up and about and start, you know, telling people exactly what he thought of, uh, you know, of this whole situation. He's given these sermons, having a huge crack at the Catholics, talking about how they're, you know, no good, dirty dogs, all the rest of it. And they're um, at this stage, you know, as I say, a couple of years after Huss's death, uh, while this bloke Zhlevsky's going around giving all these sermons, there are a bunch of Hussite prisoners in the town in Prague, and the town that uh, the town council are refusing to exchange or to ransom. 
And Zhilevsky uses this as one of the main points of a lot of his sermons. He's so arced up about it. He's so pissed off about it that he's, you know, getting blokes up and about saying, oh, bloody, these prisoners up there, it's no good. They've got them, not letting them go, you know, whatever else. Let's do something about it. So one day, well, specifically, not just one day, 30th of July in 1419, very specific here, I can tell you, he gets so arced up about it that while, you know, he's yelling at this mob, he decides, bugger this for a joke, let's get up and about ourselves and chuck some punches around, shall we, and do something about these prisoners. So he marches through the streets of Prague with these big squad of blokes behind him. They're all bloody spewing. They're all frothing, right, at the, you know, frothing at the mouth here, straight at the, at the, at the town hall in Charles Square, and they are dead set on busting these prisoners out. Anyway, as he's marching past the town hall, some bloody idiot chucks a stone at him from one of the windows, right? And it's fair to say that this was a pretty huge, pretty bloody colossal stuff up here because what happens now? Shlevsky, he's got bloody smoke coming out of his ears and he gets his boys just so arced up, so riled up after, you know, ch- uh, these stones have been chucked about that uh, they once they get to the, 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 the town hall, they storm it. They burst through the doors into the interior and they, you know, they essentially take over, the, they take control of the entire building. They speed up the stairs to the top of the tower there. And look at this. Who's waiting there? Bloody crap in their dacks <laughs> is the mayor, a judge, and seven councillors. And, uh, you know, they, they see Shlevsky come in. They say, oh, you know, bloody g'day. Yeah, an old mate. How, how you going? What's, uh, uh, you know, what's going on with you? You're good. You seem a bit, seem a bit worked up, old son. But I'll tell you what, this bloke, he's seen red. He's got bloody big plans about what's going to happen next. And he's not listening to anything they say. Shlevsky and his Hussite mates, they grab hold of these blokes, every single one of them, every single one of them, and they chuck them straight out of the window, just like that. No mucking around, nothing, you know, nothing like giving them a hiding, nothing as traditional as, you know, a broken nose or a boxed ear. Bugger that, they say, straight out of the window with you bastards. Don't even worry about it. Now, rather obviously, every single one of these freshly defenestrated blokes enjoys the world's shortest and, and, and you know, worst skydiving session before going splat on the street below and those who survived the fall were immediately torn to pieces by the Hussites who had remained below in the square. Now what's even funnier about all this is what happens when the news of the defenestration reaches the you know this this rather useless bloke King Wenceslas IV. He is so shocked by what happened. He's so shocked by these unbelievable scenes in Charles Square that if you believe it he just keels over and dies of a heart attack just like that as soon as the, as the news reaches his ears. And, and even, even better than this, you know, these, this defenestration, it didn't just cause the death of the king, it also kicked off the Hussite Wars, which were a series of conflicts that lasted for 15 years until 1434. After all these, you know, good Catholics had been chucked out of the window, the papacy obviously wasn't going to take it lying down, so they cracked down on the Hussites, while uh, the Hussites start to, you know, boot Catholics out of all the towns they controlled, and the Pope declared Five separate crusades against the Hussites within the Kingdom of Bohemia, and the Hussites defeated every single one. So eventually, after years of stouching, you know, the Catholics and the Hussites, they finally reach a compromise. But this whole conflict and the defenestrations that started it are hugely important in the development of the Reformation. As I say, you think about the Articles of Prague, you think about the stuff that Jan Hus was fighting for, all this stuff directly leading to the development of, of you know, direct development of, of Protestantism, which, is, as, as I've said, gets underway about 100 or so years later. But it all, you know, it's not really fair to say it all kicked off with the, with the defenestrations, but, you know, that certainly cranked up the tension a fair bit, I would say. Anyway, that's how she goes there with defenestration number one. Not a bad little story there, and obviously 
made all the better for the fact that a very similar thing happened a couple of hundred years later. It's not the only time that, you know, bohemians chuck blokes out of windows to, to trigger larger conflicts. So let's have a talk about the second defenestration here, which uh, this one uh, takes place in 1618, uh, it, it, almost, almost 200 years on the dot there, uh, on the 23rd of May. And I uh, certainly raised the stakes uh, when it comes to kicking off large conflicts because this one was part of the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, never mind the Hussite Wars, which is one of the most significant uh, conflicts, you know, of, of this period in history. And, uh, you know, again, it's sort of, it has its roots again in the Reformation after old mate Martin Luther has nailed up his 95 Theses in Wittenberg. Uh, Protestants and Catholics, they start scrapping and they go out for decades. They love to do this. Everyone knows that. Protestants, Catholics, you know, at each other's throats, it's their, it's their, it's their favourite hobby. In 1555, however... An agreement called the Peace of Augsburg uh, generally just gets these blokes to just calm down a little bit by opening the door to uh, a little bit of the old religious tolerance here. And as a result of this, the Catholic Habsburgs that are now in charge of Bohemia and and therefore Prague, they're not forcing their subjects to follow their religion. And and a a bloody good thing too, because a fair whack of Bohemia is fiercely Protestant in the the wake of Huss and, and Luther and all the rest of them. So she's all good, or about as close to all good as you can get with this sort of rubbish back then, you know, with, again, Catholics and Protestants at each other's throats, for about 70 years. But in 1609, Protestants in Bohemia are given even more freedoms and whatnot with the Letter of Majesty that is issued by the Holy Roman Empire, Rudolf II, and his successor, uh, successor? Matthias, uh, his successor, Matthias. So, these Bohemian Protestants, they're well and truly chuffed. They've been treated pretty bloody well by these Catholic Habsburgs, and everyone's all smiles and, you know, been as friendly as nanas at an eating club here, you know, slapping each other on the back, big, big handshakes for the cameras, all that sort of stuff, having a great time. And so the Protestants now, they're going around building churches, conducting their services, and generally having a grand old time with the Catholics, just more or less leaving them alone and, and, and letting these sleeping dogs lie. The problem is that Matthias who is getting on in years and is also childless, names his cousin Ferdinand as his heir and gives him the kingdom of Bohemia in 1617 for a little bit of practice. And I'll tell you what, this bloke was a well and truly a very nasty pasty as far as the Protestants are concerned. Because this Ferdinand fella, he was a counter-reformationist, which is, well, which is... More or less exactly what it says on the tin. Don't really need to explain that too, man, too much. He, was, he wanted to do everything that he could to reverse the effects of the Reformation and you know, this ongoing spread of Protestantism. So now that Ferdinand is in charge, he begins to make some very sharp changes to religious policy up and down Bohemia. And as you can imagine, the Protestants are not very happy about this at all. He bans Protestants from building new churches, and he even stops the construction of a couple that are already underway. Now, you know, presumably there are some winners, some people who are getting behind this decision. The builders on site, they're, they're obviously stoked to have a, you know, a bit of a longer smoke over there. But, uh, you know, this, the Protestants are anything but. The Protestants are, 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 they are fuming about this. They, and, and as a result, in the grand tradition of the Protestants, they get up and about ready to chuck some punches uh, towards these Catholics. They go to the new king and they say, listen here, you royal bastard. Things were fine and, you know, bloody fine and dandy they were before you came and stuffed it all up. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing, mate? You, you know, you, you're causing nothing but trouble around here and we were pretty well off before, before you came around and started, you know, sticking your finger in, fingers, your, your grubby fingers into our, our affairs here. Now, after this very eloquent speech, uh, Ferdinand, uh, you know, he thinks about it, he sits on his throne, he, you know, sort of ponders the, uh, you know, the, the pros and cons, he weighs up the advantages, disadvantages, and he tells them to stick it right up their Protestant asses, uh, tears the letter of majesty to shreds, and uh, has a good old laugh about it, at least figuratively. There's not a hard sort of level of historical evidence to suggest that this exactly 
took place. Although I tell you what, it would have been a hell of a show for him to have actually, you know, torn up the letter and, you know, laugh like a, a Disney villain while he did it. Anyway, anyway, this bloke, he is so gung-ho for Catholicism and he's so dead set about giving a single inch to Protestants that they all realise they're going to have to do something about it. The Protestants, they realise that they're going to, again, once again, once again, they're going to have to take matters into their own hands. And as we've, as we've already learned, there is a very specific and effective course of action that pissed off Bohemian Protestants take when they've got beef with Catholics, isn't there? Yes, there is. That question was rhetorical. I didn't need you to answer it all, indeed, myself. But I'd like to think that when I ask a question, when I'm, you know, doing this podcast, you're there listening with, you know, you're on the train, you've got your headphones in and you're answering, yes, yes, indeed, or no, no, not at all, like that, and having people look at you like you're an absolute wacko. I, I do, that mental image is very pleasing to me. Anyway, anyway, shall we go on? Yes, we shall. <laughs> These Protestant lords, they get together on the 23rd of May, 1618, and they pay a visit to the Bohemian Chancellery. This time, they're a little more civil than Zhilevsky and his furious mob. They knock on the door all polite. They go inside, wipe their boots on the, you know, on the, on the doormat, all that sort of stuff. Say, hey, mate, sorry, mate, here to, here to see the, the Lord's Regent, if that's all right. And, uh, you know, the reception waves them up, whatever else. And they go inside. They're received by these four blokes who, as I say, known as the Lord's, the, the Lord's Regent. All of them are Catholics. And they have a huge crack at them. I'll tell you what, you know, after all the politeness going in, they're just like, no, stuff this. They go in. Swinging for the fences, they bang on about how Ferdinand is, you know, ruining on their business up in their grill, all that sort of stuff. They talk about their oppression, their lack of religious freedom, how the letter of majesty, what have you, has been ignored, and then inquire just what the bloody hell precisely the Lord's Regent uh, were going to do about it. Now, obviously, these blokes are a little taken aback by this onslaught, and they say, well, just whoa, whoa, whoa there, steady on, fellas. We've got to have a think about this. We're going to figure out what we're going to do, and we will we will let you know. We'll get back to you. Now, the leader of these angry Protestants, who is a bloke named Count Yindrich Matthias Turnvalsassener, he says, get stuffed, you blokes. We all know what that means. Stop trying to give us the San Diego slip. Stop flapping your gabbers, palming us off. Give us a straight answer. And the laws, they say, nah, mate, seriously, just calm down. You know, cool your jets. Let us have a chat about it. We'll get in touch by, you know, Friday at the latest. No worries. We'll get back to you. Old mate Count Turn, however, he is having none of it. He's having none of it. And he advances on them and he says, we know you're involved with all this rubbish. We know you love being pricks to Protestants and you are going to pay for it. He rolls up his sleeves and at this point, the two of the Lords Regent, they stand up and say, that is right, mate. Maybe we did get stuck into you blokes. What are you going to do about it? Just take a swing, bro. Take a swing. What are you going to do? Rolling up your sleeves. My God, bro. Come on. What are you going to do? And, you know, obviously everyone's standing there posturing like boozing punters, squaring off for a bar brawl, saying stuff like, oh, well, have a go. One phone call, man. One phone call. My cousins are down here. Seriously, man. They'll smash you. They'll smash you with trolley poles, bro. What? Anyway, these blokes, Count Zlovata and Count Martinis, right? They reckon they're going to get locked up or something, and it'll be a cracking story to tell the king later on, probably get all sorts of promotions and, and whatever for arcing up like this, you know, well and truly brown-nosing their new Catholic king. Um, but of course, uh, what happens instead after they have, you know, effectively tried to stand up to these angry Protestants and say, yes, well, maybe we've had something to do with, uh, with prosecuting you, blo you blokes. What are you going to do about it? Uh, what happens after that is the Protestants all just run at them again, roll up the sleeves, open up the window, grab hold of them, chuck them straight out into the street below, along with their secretary, just for good measure. You got to send a message. Uh, they sail out into the air, fall 20 metres to the ground below, where, if you'll believe it, they emerge completely unscathed. They're not even badly injured or anything, just a couple of bumps and bruises. Now, there are differing accounts as to why. 
they claim to have been caught by angels or the Virgin Mary or some rubbish, you know, and all the Catholics run with this story. They talk about divine intervention and all sorts of nonsense like that, like they love to do. The Protestants, on the other hand, later publish a pamphlet saying that the only reason that the Catholics actually survived the fall is because they landed in a big pile of horse turd and uh, that was under the window. And uh, I'll leave it to you to decide uh, who you believe. Certainly one of them seems a little more plausible than the other. Anyway. This defenestration of these Catholic lords was one of the opening moves in the chess game of the Thirty Years' War, a conflict that lasted, you'll be surprised to learn, 30 years. Surprise, surprise. The Catholic Habsburgs rallied their armies, got it ready to attack the Protestant Bohemians, but Bohemia was ready for this and ended up booting the Habsburgs right out of their kingdom and installed a Calvinist king instead. Anyway, it all spiralled way out of control after that and, uh, you know, effectively started as a war between Protestants and Catholics and ended up as a huge devastating conflict that that, that sort of enveloped the continent, you know, the entire continent of Europe and, and cost 8 million people their lives. All because, all because some angry Protestants chucked some Catholics out of the window. This one, you know, again, directly cause and effect led to the, uh, well, again, one of the things that led to it. I want to big it up and I want to say it's the only reason, not necessarily the only reason, but still pretty good story all the same. Anyway, in both these instances, pissed off Protestants provoked huge and deadly religious wars by chucking Catholics out of windows in Prague. The parallels between these two, two incidents are insane. It is bizarre to think that two centuries apart, these very, very similar event, uh, you know, things took place that, that ended up having very similar consequences, uh, in, you know, in terms of triggering these religious wars. Anyway, before we wrap up, there's one more incidents, uh, incident here. Before we wrap up, however, there is one more incident that is referred to, uh, you know, by some as the third defenestration of Prague, although, unfortunately, it doesn't involve the neat parallels with, with Protestants, Catholics, and Dev. But maybe it's, it's not that unfortunate that it doesn't, you know, didn't end up in a devastating religious war, actually, when I think about it. Anyway, anyway, this one takes place in 1948. In 1948, the Czech foreign minister at the time, a bloke whose name was Jan Masaryk, a lot of Jans in this story, Jan Masaryk, he was found dead under his bathroom window in the courtyard of the foreign ministry. Now, the official line that the new communist government, communist governments obviously known for their scrupulous honesty, uh, the official line that the communist government took on his death is that it was a suicide. Uh, but seeing as this bloke uh, wasn't too hot on the communists, uh, this certainly raised an eyebrow or two or three. It's never been conclusively proven whether poor old Jan jumped or was thrown, but there are certainly a, a fair few question marks surrounding his death. And uh, I like the way that one bloke put it when, when talking about this, this third and final defenestration. He said, <clears throat> Jan Masaryk was a very tidy man. He was such a tidy man that when he jumped... He shut the window after himself, which I thought was a, uh, a pretty bloody good line, to be honest. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the defenestrations of Prague. Very, very funny stories. And of course, very odd to see the historical parallels between the, the two. And again, I guess we're lucky that... You know, the, the, the murder of Jan Masaryk didn't kick off a, a religious war in 1948. I think we're all, the world's a better place for that uh, having been, you know, a bit more of an isolated incident. Anyway, that is that for this week, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for hanging out and, uh, and sticking around for this episode of Half Hour History. Certainly has been great to, uh, to bring it to you. Uh, all the usual rubbish, boring, uh, nonsense housekeeping announcements now to follow. Uh, of course, halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can get at me on Twitter at Half History with no O, wouldn't fit, very annoying. 
And uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, maybe you've got an idea for a, a topic or something like that, halfhousehistory at gmail.com, although the, probably the best way is to use the contact form on the website. I've still got plenty of stickers to give away, so if you want one of them, uh, well, actually, I've made, I'll be honest, I'm not sending one because that's a really rubbish bit of mail to get. You open up the envelope and a single bloody sticker falls out like, you know, winter's first snowflake. Nah, nah, nah. I'll send you at least five. And uh, if you want them, absolutely free. Just send me your address and I'll, I'll send them through to you. Um, and uh, that is just about that. We are going to close out the show as usual with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Astronoid would like to know, the 30 Years' War, which we talked about obviously today, the 30 Years' War lasted decades and killed millions of people. Why didn't they just name it the 10-Day War and get the whole thing over with more quickly? <laughs>